Hello, I'm Pete Peterson, and this is episode 40 of the Rabbit Room podcast. Andrew Peterson and Travis Prinzi led a discussion at Hutchmoot 2012 called Tales of the Fall. Here in part one of that session, Travis Prinzi, who is one of the proudest and smartest nerds I know, discusses the ways in which our fallen world is reflected in the literature we read. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to talking to you guys today. Um, we, we, uh, this is Tales of the Fall, so if you're in the wrong place, then now you know it. Hey, Eric. Um, bye. And so, uh, <laughs> so uh, we, Travis is going to talk first, and then I'm going to talk. And, uh, and here, we, let me pray for us before we get going. All right. Um, our Father in Heaven, thank you for this time uh, to be together. I ask that you will give Travis and I wisdom. Help us to know uh, when to speak and when to be silent. And I pray that uh, if there is anything wrong in what we say, that you will uh, correct it by the time it gets into anybody's heart. Um, uh, yeah, we, we can't do this without your help, so we ask you to be with us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know about brains being full. My belly is. Is anybody just trying to have nap time? Instead of this, if you need to, just go right ahead. I won't be upset. So this is Tales of the Fall, which of course is a Brad Pitt movie about. Um, I, I, I was seriously toying with doing like ten minutes analysis on Legends of the Fall and to see how you responded and and then course correct. Um, Tales of the Fall. Uh, so many things that we can do with that. You know, we get this title, Tales of the Fall. What do you do with it? Um, I'm sure that we won't be able to cover everything relevant to um, stories that portray the fall, but um, we're going to get a couple of different angles at it here, and hopefully we can all come away with something. Um, Let me know if I'm going too long. Okay, so Tales of the Fall. Here's a a quote from Mr. Utterson, um, who is from The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he has just met Mr. Hyde for the first time, and he's reflecting on that meeting. And he says, there is something there, if I could find a name for it. God bless me, the man seems hardly human. Something troglodytic, shall we say, or or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell, or, or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? The last, I think, for, oh, my poor Harry Jekyll, if I ever read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. Evil shows up in fiction, often um, in fantasy fiction in particular, which I'll be focusing on today, um, as dehumanization, as monster figures. There's always, we're going to be talking a bit about ghost stories today and about uh, about monster stories and things like that. Um, So one of the most profound ways in which the fall and our fallen state is communicated in story is through uh, dehumanization of characters into some kind of a monstrous form. So I want to accomplish a few things in my allotted time here. Um, I want to deal with some theory, you know, some of the, some of the heady stuff, um, with a particular focus on imaginative literature, um, fantasy and science fiction I'm referring to there. Um, I want to attempt to explain a little bit the, the symbolic ways in which humanity is portrayed as fallen. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to walk through some examples mostly. I'm not going to use a bunch of big words and do theory. I'm going to focus on some, some of my favorite examples. Uh, and, and I think that'll help us get a better handle on what you should be looking for, what we can be looking for in literature that portrays the fall. 
Um, second, I want to discuss how literature can give us kind of a bigger, broader, and really more accurate picture of the fall than sometimes our theological emphases give us. I think we, we tend to zero in on certain matters of theology to the exclusion of others, and we're going to show how imaginative literature can sort of correct us a little bit on that as, as we're reading these stories. Um, third, I want to kind of get to the heart of it all, which is the way we grapple with the fear that is the inevitable result of a fallen world. Um, some of you know from the rabbit room that, uh, that I like scary stories and think they're actually good for Christians, and, and some of you probably think that that's a completely crazy position. I'm hoping it'll sound a little bit less crazy by the end of this. Um, and finally, I want to point off into the distance toward the remedy for that fear um, and, and how it is that we live in a, in a tragic and fallen world. Um, C.S. Lewis, who we all love, of course, um, wrote a little book called The Abolition of Man. Familiar with this book? Um, his concern in this book was with uh, this English textbook, which he called The Green Book. And um, it, it gave what Donald T. Williams called a view of humanity that, that nothing but the physically quantifiable can be real or objective. Um, and, and it therefore rules out precisely the central essence of human nature which is the spiritual. Um, in other words, to deny the spiritual component of a human being is to deny the most important part of our existence and to give a less than human or even inhuman definition to what people are. Um, Lewis didn't mince words when evaluating the consequences of holding such a view. He said, the practical result of education in the spirit of the green book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Uh, that's a big claim, but it's true because we're denying reality when we say that all that we can perceive with the physical senses is what's real. That's all that there is. It's something that we call nominalism. It's our materialism. Um, we don't believe there's anything beyond the physical. That will destroy society because society is made up of people who are spiritual. And, and if you don't believe that, then you have a problem with the way we're going to react with one another. So um, people who love the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and all sorts of weird fantasy fiction stuff with dragons um, and that kind of crazy. We, those of us here who love that stuff have most definitely encountered people who say, well, you're checked out of reality. Like you're off in some fantasy world. Come back to the real world and focus on, you know, focus on things like nonfiction and, and, and the reality that's happening in the world. And, and my response to that is actually, and Tolkien's response would have been, actually people who read fantasy fiction, which he called the highest form of art, um, are more in touch with reality than, than others because you're dealing now with symbols of spiritual reality. Um, you're, you're going to more permanent things. So a lamppost that somebody builds and lights up with electric light is interesting. That's part of our real world, but lightning itself... That's what fantasy fiction gets us to. It gets us to the, the sort of the magical stuff that happens in the world. Now, as important as that is, and we all understand it, um, when it comes to the good, portraying the good in Christ symbols and literature and that kind of thing, it is also just as important in portraying the bad. Um, and so we get, uh, we get these uh, monster movies and monster stories and things like werewolves and vampires and ghosts and Frankenstein's monster and zombies and all that kind of stuff. And all of these things are attempts to grapple with the fallen world. There's something wrong with the place. Like, we're, we all recognize something is messed up here. And notice, let's go through this, that classic list there. Werewolves, a human being who becomes a wolf. Vampires, a human being who should be staying dead and is not, and is, and is going around making other people like that. Um, ghosts, spirits that should have passed on 
as, as the human journey is supposed to do. Um, Frankenstein's monster, a reanimated bunch of body parts. Um, zombies, uh, yeah, I mean, dead people standing up, walking around, eating other people. All of these are made up of actual humans, but they are less than human. And so here we start to get an idea of the symbolism of, of Gothic literature and the way it portrays the fallen state or the society that Lewis says we will inevitably have if we deny the spiritual component of reality um, of who we actually are. Um, zombies in particular um, are frightening. Uh, you know, you don't think of them as frightening, you think of them as these kind of comic things, but there's this great, the epic of Gilgamesh, Ishtar isn't a big fan of Gilgamesh, and Ishtar cries out, Father, give me the bull of heaven so he can kill Gilgamesh in his dwelling. If you do not give me the bull of heaven, I will knock down the gates of the netherworld, I will smash the doorposts and leave the doors flat down, and will let the dead go up to the living, and the dead will outnumber the living. The, I don't know if you've seen or can even stomach the walking dead, but <laughs> the terrifying thing about the walking dead is there are so many of them. The zombies are everywhere, and when they get to the poor people who are left, they're overwhelmed. Um, so, again, dehumanization. Classic monsters are pictures of dehumanization, uh, humans that are less than what they should be. Um, and that is what we all uh, grapple with in the fall. Some of our favorite stories from some of our favorite Christian writers um, explore some of the same ideas in different ways. Um, Tolkien said all stories are about the fall. All stories are about the fall. He made up the word, of course, eucatastrophe, which is the sudden joyous turn, the intervention of grace. The, the classic example is his own, where Frodo, in the very end, the hero of the story, decides to be evil <laughs> and hold on to that ring and walk away. And that ring would have never been destroyed had it not been for a sudden supernatural intervention of grace. It amazes me that that story ends not with a hero doing what he was supposed to do, but with two sinful people battling over power and, and grace intervening. Um, so, um, Tolkien says all stories are about the fall. Um, there's eucatastrophe in a fairy tale, that sudden joyous turn, but you can't have eucatastrophe unless you have what he called discatastrophe, or the actual belief that things might not work out. Like, there has to be a real genuine fear in the story. This might not end well. Um, and so, he also played with this idea of dehumanization, uh, really, really well, uh, dehumanization. Um, he refers in, uh, on, on fairy stories, his essay on fairy stories, to the use of an ancient and very widespread folklore notion, which occurs in many fairy, fairy stories. The notion that the life or strength of a man or creature may reside in some other place or thing. Of course, he used that idea with Sauron. Um, if you're familiar with Harry Potter, Horcruxes. If you're familiar with George MacDonald, the Giant's Heart is a fairy tale that does that same thing. What is it doing? It's a human being or, uh, or something like a human being that does not want to feel and experience the pain of the world. And so you take part of, especially death, and so you take part of your life force and put it into something else in order to preserve your physical life. Um, J.K. Rowling has a fairy tale called The Warlock's Hairy Heart in which this wizard doesn't want to experience love because he sees all of his friends falling in love and having broken hearts. And so what he does is he takes his heart out and he puts it into a cellar, into a, into a box in the cellar, and he leaves it there. And then years and years go by and he never experiences love. 
And finally, he looks around and says, well, look, all my friends are getting married now, so I, I, I should probably do that. And so he, for social status or whatever, and, and so he, he brings a woman in who he does not fall in love with, but he decides, well, I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to need my heart for this. And so down into the cellar he goes, and he pulls this heart out, and it's grown hair all over it like a beast. And he puts it back inside himself and immediately becomes a beast and kills the woman. Not a happy story. <laughs> Dehumanization, a picture of our fallen state when we deny our essential essence as created spiritual beings. Narnia. Walking through some examples here. And The Magician's Nephew. Um, love that book. Um, along comes Aslan, bounding through, singing the song, creating the whole world, and then he gathers the talking beasts to himself. And the talking beasts are a symbol um, of humanity. I mean, they, they are basically the humans of Narnia um, in, in that creation. And he says this to them, the dumb beasts whom I have not chosen are yours also. Treat them gently and cherish them, but do not go back to their ways, lest you cease to be talking beasts. For out of them you were taken, and into them you can return. Do not so. So these talking beasts have the ability to act in a way that is contrary to their created intent and so become like the dumb beasts, the, the ones who cannot talk. Much like, out of the ground I've taken you, you'll return there. Very similar. Okay, how about his Ransom Trilogy? What is in Paralandra the Satan figure called? Anybody remember? The Unman. Yes, the Unman dehumanization. Basically a physical body that is allowed to be possessed and used by demons and by Satan to do evil, the unman. What we become in our fallen state if we do not fill it up with spiritual realities. Um, Lord of the Rings again. Um, orcs. If, depending on which of the like seven different theories Tolkien has for his own orcs you follow. Most of them have to do with um, them being some form of a mockery of elves or a basically dehumanization of elves, elves that were distorted and became orcs. Um, Harry Potter, Voldemort, he becomes more and more evil and cuts up his soul, becomes less and less human and more and more snake-like. Um, Jekyll and Hyde, obvious example, one of the best examples of dehumanization, where this um, astute, very smart doctor becomes this terrible, horrible person who runs over a little girl in the street just because he can. Um, no concern, suddenly, for other human beings. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, one of the books you're supposed to read for this, um, which if you have not read yet, how dare you, um, I didn't read like half the reading list. Um, N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright, um, in Surprised by Hope, puts forth a view of hell, which I'm going to touch on very lightly here because I don't want to get into a, a debate over hell. But it, it's in line with um, this type of thinking, and C.S. Lewis did something similar. He is re referring to what hell might be and kind of musing on what hell might be, and he, he makes this statement. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to the worship to, and, and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. And so his, his theory that he, that he was on to develop very, very briefly is that um, those in eternity in hell end up becoming not human whatsoever because they've chosen to reject the image of God. If the, the image of God is essential to humanity, then the continual and final rejection of that image of God means you are no longer a human being. Um, again, dehumanization. What's a great picture of this? The Nazgul, the ring rates, 
excellent picture of this. They desired power above all things. Um, they, they held onto those rings and they became slaves of evil and they are neither now living or dead. Um, they are just eternally unhuman and, and forces for evil. C.S. Lewis has playing with similar ideas in The Great Divorce. Um, what's really interesting about the ring race is their motivation. Um, their, the motivation, of course, is power. It's, it's that they desire power, just like Sauron does. And that leads to uh, sort of another side of discussing the fall. We, I think, um, at least I, and probably many in here, tend to emphasize when we're talking about the fall, our guilt, our fallenness, what's wrong with us, um, and all that, which of course we need to discuss and we need to talk about. Um, We want to make sure that we understand that we are fully in need of the gospel, not just partially in need of it. It isn't me working with God to get saved. It's entirely the work of God. In my flesh there dwells no good thing. There is none righteous, no, not one. Continue to affirm all of that. So I'm not going to travel off into some heresy here. Um, But I think we emphasize that sometimes at the expense of other biblical truth, that we are, of course, prisoners of evil. And that we... Who in here had a choice about being born? Anybody decide, I'm going to be born a sinner now. Now, I mean, you just were, right? I mean, we came into this world, and sorry, you're a sinner. Um, and, And that sucks for all of us, right? Because I think most of us don't want to be. <laughs> and, and so without sacrificing the full guilt of our own sin, uh, let's also be aware that Jesus came on a rescue mission to rescue those he loves, that he loves us, and that we were created as image bearers of God. And the Bible doesn't distinguish. It doesn't say that the Christians have the image of God and the non-Christians don't. That's, that's nowhere to be found. In fact, just the opposite. We're all image bearers of God. We are all loved. We are all, um, we are all loved by God as people who bear his image, however broken and distorted that might be. And so not only are we um, guilty in the fall, we are victims of it. And so in need of rescue. Where am I going with all this? Hopefully not into heresy. Um, one of the other things you'll find often in fantasy fiction, which you'll also find, of course, in the real world um, all the time, and it's, it's a reflection of that, is that not only do people dehumanize themselves, but they force that upon others. Um, so Wright talks about those who dehumanize themselves and drag others down with them. And so, again, examples we've already mentioned, um, what Melkor did to the elves to turn them into orcs, dehumanized them. Um, Things like the Dementors in Harry Potter, where they suck the soul out of a person. They leave the physical body there, but have taken away their essential humanity. Um, Political structures in our own world and and within the many worlds that we read in fantasy fiction. Um, The Wizarding World, for example, divides people up into classes, which, of course, we've never done. Uh, (laughs) um, I love the last line in Animal Farm. The creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig, and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. (laughs) Now, he had his own political reasons for writing that, um, George Orwell at the time, but the, the fundamental truth there is that in the quest for power on the farm, the, the humans became the pigs, dehumanization, um, but it was a quest for power. It was a quest to be the one in control. Um, in our own world, bullying, right, is a, is a kind of a, that's where that comes from. 
that comes from a quest for power. Bigotry, all of the isms that we all, that we, that we sexism, racism, ageism, all, all of those, which I, I think we unfortunately so often do a bad job of talking about in the church, because I think we, instead of coming up with Christ's answer on these very sensitive issues, we just line up with one or the other political party. And we end up just kind of putting God's stamp of approval on something that's already out there that has nothing to do with reconciling the world to God through Christ. Um, and, and I think that's something that we need to be very careful about. For me, reading fantasy fiction was part of that. Um, when I stood in my own, I'm sorry if there's a spoiler here, when I was standing in the backyard of my house raking leaves and listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks, and at the death of Dobby, I was standing in my yard, raking leaves, and just bawling. Dobby is an elf. And I'm just, I'm, and we're in a neighborhood where we regularly hear gunshots. There's just tough people everywhere. And, and I'm, just, I'm raking leaves, and I'm just crying. Elf, I'm, like, I'm, I'm talking like all-out ugly cry. Like, my face was crumpled. Tears were streaming. I've never met a house elf, neither of you. <laughs> um, actually, if you have, let's talk afterwards. Um, <laughs> because I really want to meet one. Um, but I care very much about their plight to the point of crying. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever cried like that over unjust power structures in our world. Um, but I came out of that exercise of the imagination about what fallen people do to each other and dehumanizing each other because the elves were enslaved. And then they were told, you like being enslaved. And they were told that long enough that the elves started saying, we like being enslaved. Just terrible, awful picture of what we do to one another. And I came out of that story and realized, wow, uh, th this stuff that goes on in our world, really, it's about power. It's about maintaining privilege and that sort of thing. So um, hopefully fantasy fiction that, and imaginative literature and really any story that wakes us up to these things um, will help us to sort of rethink what we do as a church. Um, Another one that I love, and I'm going to do something I've never done before, and it's risky. I'm going to analyze the literature of somebody who is sitting right here <laughs> and about to come up and talk after I'm done. <laughs> but I saw this same thing happening as I was reading um, On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness and North Ruby Eaton as, as Andrew was developing his uh, concepts of the fangs. And you realize at the end of North Ruby Eaton that they come from humans. And then he continues to develop it in Monster in the Hollows to the point where the human actually has to want to sing the song to get to the point that they want to be transformed. And at this point, I'm going, wow, this is, this is profound stuff. And then he did something in, in a chapter that is one of the saddest moments in the entire series, Artham in the Deeps of Throg, that chapter, where everybody else is probably crying as they read about Artham and Esben and their battle to not become, and I'm rejoicing, I'm like, yes, he went there, he did it, this is fantastic, because what he did with this, you're probably all crying, I was rejoicing, um, what he did with this was he beautifully blended, beautifully blended that whole view of the fall, that we are created and were created good in images of God, and that it was the power of evil initially that lied to us and convinced us to be afraid and to turn. And he, and he, he blended that idea that, that we are beautiful because we're created in God's image with our own guilt because they actually did have to sing the song and decide they were going to, and in their weakness, they broke down and gave into evil with the idea of someone dehumanizing somebody else because it was an evil overlord that was creating these monstrosities 
beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you for that. If you have not read the Wingfeather Saga, go read it, because it's just a, a wonderful picture of, of the many aspects of our fallen world. Um, so uh, Donald T. Williams says, um, to make slaves of human beings is to mistreat them. You can't really talk about the mistreatment of slaves, the making of slaves, and all the other versions of that, the lesser versions of putting people in lower levels of power, is to mistreat them because it is to deny their God-given nature and force them to live a lie. Where does this come from, the dehumanization of others? Um, well, it comes out of fear. It comes out of fear, which is the result of the fall. We are now afraid. Eve was afraid she was missing out on something. Adam then, of course, was probably afraid to be alone um, after Eve left him for the fruit. Uh, so this, this process of running away from who we were created to be um, is what George MacDonald called um, the unmaking of ourselves. That we make our own fate, he says, in unmaking ourselves. That in defacing the image of God in ourselves, we construct for ourselves a world of horror and dismay. How do we grapple with it? Well, most of us do one of two things. We either create some sort of illusionary safe world that we can all sort of live in. It might be a safe church community. It might be um, something like a uh, poltergeist. Got to talk about poltergeist, right? Um, where that movie opens up with uh, uh, a community of houses that all look the same. Everything is safe. Everything is built exactly with symmetry. Everything is built in a way that gives the illusion that whatever else is going on in the world, not worried about it, we're okay here in our perfect little housing development. Uh, it's like that song, Little Boxes on a Hillside, Little Boxes All the Same. Some of you haven't watched that show. You probably shouldn't. I probably shouldn't. Um, so, weeds. Um, so, the, the, uh, this concept where we, um, we, we create kind of illusionary worlds for ourselves. By the end of Poltergeist, the house is being destroyed. There are ghosts everywhere. Skeletons are coming up through the ground. Stark picture of what reality really is um, in, in our fallen world. Uh, J.K. Rowling was uh, talking about um, fear. She said, uh, I remember being in America a few years ago and Halloween was approaching and three television programs in a row were talking about how to explain children that it wasn't real. Now, there's a reason why we create these stories, she says, and, and have always created these stories. And the reason why we have had these festivals and the reason why even the church allows a certain amount of fear, we need to feel fear and we need to confront that in a controlled environment. And also, what are we saying to children who do have scary and disturbing thoughts? We're saying, that's wrong, that's not natural, and it's not something that's intrinsic to the human condition, that there's some way odd or ill. My children are odd, but <laughs> I want them to experience fear. Um, she connects, then, this concept of fear um, with loss of hope. Um, so, in her stories, these, uh, Roni Natoff was analyzing Rowling's stories and said that she connects despair with madness and suggests that it is the loss of hope that makes us demented, that promotes criminality, and destroys the heart. That's what fear leads to. And fear that we cover up with a false illusion of a world leads to the same thing. Because we all know it's there. We all know that the, the ghosts are underneath the ground. We all know that our houses are haunted. Um, so uh, this loss of hope um, not only tells children the dragons don't exist, but you can't defeat them, ultimately the Chesterton quote that fairy tales teach us. Not that dragons exist, children know that, but um, that, they can, that it can be defeated. So I'm a big fan of ghost stories for, for Christians because I think that the ghost stories in the Gothic literature, um, I'm not talking about 
movies that celebrate violence and gore and that sort of thing. I'm talking about stories that portray um, the fear that we all really are feeling but are denying. The other way, of course, that we deal with fear is to um, this abuse of power concept we're dealing with. So instead of creating a world of illusion for myself, I will become the most powerful person in the world and make sure that none of you can hurt me. Um, and that's, that's what every dictator has ever done. That's what Sauron did and Voldemort did. And it's this quest for invincibility, this quest to avoid the pain of the world. We do it on a small scale with our fairy tales. Oh, that, that grim fairy tale is too gruesome. We can't have that. So let's clean it up and then tell the children that story. We create these nice, safe little worlds. I hate Tinkerbell. I'm sorry. I hate Tinkerbell because fairies are elves. They're not these tiny little pixie. That's a pixie, not a fairy. Sorry. <laughs> Madeline Langle uh, was a genius at, at building moments of fear. I'm gonna, for those of you who don't want to go watch scary movies, I'm going to give you a few other ways to kind of get at these concepts of horror um, and, and maybe stories that are more hopeful. I, I actually don't have a problem with um, stories that end badly either. We won't go there today, um, but I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. Every year I've been trying to convince you to go home and read some H.P. Lovecraft. Um, it's almost Halloween. Now's a good time. But we won't do Lovecraft today. Um, we'll do Madeline Langle. So, uh, A Wind in the Door. A Wind in the Door, fans? Got a few? That's another assignment. Go read A Wind in the Door. Um, so, uh, there's this moment where uh, two main characters in the time stories are, are Meg and Charles Wallace, you know. And so, um, Meg uh, is walking out one night to find Charles Wallace in A Wind in the Door. And instead runs into, or unexpectedly runs into, her principal, Mr. Jenkins. These are kids so just from school. And she runs into Mr. Jenkins, who's never come to her house before, and, and she doesn't really understand what's going on. And so uh, all of a sudden, there's, there's her principal, and, and Langle writes, in utter confusion, she reached out to take his hand. And as she did so, Louise, which is the snake that lives on their wall, Louise, the snake, rose up on the wall behind her, hissing and making a strange warning clacking. Meg turned to the snake, looking as large and hooded as a cobra, hissing angrily at Mr. Jenkins, raising her large dark coils to strike. Mr. Jenkins screamed in a way she never knew a man could scream, a high piercing screech. Then he rose up into the night like a great flapping bird, flew screaming across the sky, became a rent and emptiness, a slash of nothingness. Meg found that she too was screaming. Chilling. Chilling stuff. Mr. Jenkins turned out to be a demon called an Akthros in the story. What Langle has done so brilliantly here is she's taken somebody who's in this nice, peaceful little world and out of nowhere took something that was familiar, something she thought was, I mean, she didn't like her principal very much, but there he was, and all of a sudden it's a demon. And when we are not aware of the terror and the horror in this world on a daily basis, it's going to shock us out of nowhere and we're going to find ourselves screaming. Lengel does it so well. Ursula Le Guin does it well, too. Um, I'm not going to read this because I'm probably running out of time. Um, let me put a little watch up here. Yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Okay, so let me do uh, a couple more thoughts real quick here. Um, what time do we have till? You don't know. Okay. I've been talking for almost a half an hour. So you know what? I'm going to skip that, too. And I'm going to wrap up and move it to Andrew so that we... If there's time, I'll read you a little Dickens ghost story later, depending on what, we, what kind of time we have at the end. But I kind of want to wrap this up here by talking about um, Dickens ghost stories are great. Um, not incredibly terrifying. Definitely recommend them. Um, 
my wife is really smart. And um, she's, she's a counselor and uh, big on what's called narrative therapy. And I, I, I can't explain that as well as she can, obviously. But that sounds like something we should be talking about, right? All the story stuff that we talk about. And uh, she recently was uh, working on this book called um, Mindsight by Dan Siegel. Some research was done that showed that the best predictor, let's talk about parenting, the best predictor of what will make someone a good parent is, is not the circumstances that they've had to deal with in their life. Um, but, and this is research, so it's like real, um, but their, <laughs> their own ability to make sense of their own story. Even if abuse or tragedy occurs in a person's life, if they can make meaning out of their story, out of their own narrative, then they can pass on to their children a coherent narrative and a healthy legacy that makes sense of that tragedy, that makes sense of the fall um, in their own personal life. Um, narrative therapy. If we can get a handle on this story, um, and really, who has the story? You know, we've got the story. By grace, we have it. And the rest of the world knows the world's a mess, but they don't, they don't know how to make sense of the story. And oftentimes, we don't. Um, we don't know how to make sense of the stuff that happens in our lives, but if we have a story that involves one who suffered with us, um, then we have a story that doesn't neglect the fall, that doesn't hide the fall, that doesn't put it in a nice little box um, and, and hide it, or, or doesn't abuse power. I mean, come on, Christ didn't abuse power. He submitted to it. He was the abused one. Um, if we're able to do that, then we have a story of the fall or a tale of the fall that we can tell. Um, and we can't do it alone because so much of the dehumanization in these stories comes from isolation. So Voldemort has no friends. And so he doesn't care about his soul. Eugene Peterson said this, when we say soul, we are calling attention to the God origins, God intentions, God operations that make us what we are. It is the most personal and most comprehensive term for what we are, man, woman, child. Soul is a word reverberated with relationships. God relationships, human relationships, earth relationships. Soul gets beneath the fragmented surface appearances and experiences and affirms an at-homeness, an affinity with whoever and whatever is at hand. So if we're going to make sense of the spiritual reality of the world and not deny it, um, then it's got to be with each other. Um, a quote from one of this morning's sessions from Over the Rhine, pain is our mother. She helps us recognize each other. It's a community thing coming up with a story that makes sense of the fall. And I'm going to turn it over to Andrew. For more information regarding the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room music composed and performed by Ben Shive.